Hey, everybody, this is Daryl. Um, so recently, I posted a thread on Twitter that raised the ire of uh, an army of anonymous posters with frogs in their avatars, as I've been wont to do from time to time. The topic was immigration. And the thread was an attempt to explain why I think that the immigration issue is no longer solvable at the federal level. Uh, as I went back and forth with the frogs, someone said that I should discuss the issue in a podcast with two guys that you might know if you're Twitter users in the same uh, in, in the same area as me. Uh, and to those of you who don't, they're just two smart guys. Um, they're Dr. Benjamin Braddock. His handle is at Graduated Ben and Lafayette Lee, uh, whose handle is at Partisan underscore O. And then I also decided to bring in Indian Bronson at Indian underscore Bronson, because uh, while I think I could be wrong about this, um, the other two have might have use somewhat similar to mine. Bronson's a very smart guy who vehemently disagrees with me. So uh, so this isn't really intended to be a debate, um, although we'll see how it goes. Uh, more of a discussion about where we're at politically, uh, culturally demographically and where things are headed and what our options really are. So before we dig in, I will let the guys introduce themselves and tell you where you can find them. Uh, why don't we start with you, Ben? Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, so I'm uh, Ben Braddock. I'm an editor with uh, IM1776 and uh, I've been covering a lot of the uh, border issues, immigration topics, uh, and everything from interviewing the guy who came up with the term, the great replacement, to uh, you know, going down to uh, the border to see the situation there. And I just got back from a tour of the Northern Triangle, uh, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, uh, to look at you know how the situation down there is is progressing, you know uh what what's the best path forward for solving this problem of mass migration all right thank you uh lafayette uh lee uh why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourselves uh yourself and where they can find you sure thank you for having me on uh yeah i go by lafayette lee you can call me lee here um i also work with i am 1776 and and ben here um I, I mostly, you know, I'm a veteran, so I talk a lot about veterans issues um, and, and patriotism. Uh, I also am very involved with uh, local politics, um, kind of taking a little bit more of a localism approach. And so uh, also write about that. Um, but you can find me over at ruins.substack.com. And as uh, Martyr made also uh, references, I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm glad to be here and I really appreciate the invitation. All right. And uh, your turn, Bronson. Hey, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, so I'm, I'm Indian Bronson. Uh, you know, I write under that handle. Uh, you can you can find me on Twitter uh, at Indian underscore Bronson. Uh, one thing, though, uh, Twitter's old engineers didn't really know regular expressions. So the uh, the ban evasion uh, thing that I did, it's a, it's a lowercase L, uh, not an uppercase I uh, in the in the handle. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I. Uh, you know, happy to talk. Um, I, I do disagree with, with the premise, uh, but uh, yeah, let's jump in. Yeah, let's jump right into it. So I'll get us started. 
Uh, as I said, the issue at hand was immigration and whether those of us who would like to see less of it really have any options left at the federal level where the constitutional power, at least to regulate immigration rests. And so I had said that the immigration issue was settled, which may have been a poor, a poor choice of words, um, but th that it's just unrealistic in the current year to hope to achieve the kind of political consensus that would be necessary to override the obstacles thrown up by the bureaucracy, the courts, the media, the sanctuary states, the street protesters, the lawfare campaigns, even the pro-immigration corporate wing of the GOP. Um, Scott Greer wrote a criticism of my position on his Substack page, and you know it didn't really. It didn't, it didn't really address the important part of what I was saying, um, but that, that was probably my fault for being a little bit unclear. And he did point to uh, a few things where I, where I probably was. You know, I said the issue was settled. Um, people took that uh, probably fairly as me saying that the pro-mass immigration position had somehow won the argument. That's not what I meant. Um, some people took it as me saying that they shouldn't care or concern themselves with immigration anymore. And I wasn't saying that either. Uh, by all means, continue to vote for immigration hawks uh, when they run for federal office. I certainly will, because slowing down the rate of change is good, even if only because it gives us more time to prepare for the world that's coming. So the point I was making had to do with the political means available to immigration hawks uh, and the likelihood of means becoming available to make radical changes in the face of all that massive institutional resistance. And whether we're making the most efficient use of our time and energy, uh, politically speaking, uh, by hoping some president is going to ride to our rescue on this. In other words, I'm not trying to get people to stop worrying or thinking about immigration and demographic change, but to ask themselves, if this issue cannot be won, what then? Because a lot of the replies I got illustrated the fact that most of these people have not thought about that, and they, they almost refuse to think about it. Because the most popular answer was some version of if we can't stop mass immigration and reverse the demographic trends, then all is lost and there's nothing to fight for, nothing left to care about, something that I disagree with. Now, Trump came to power in 2016 with, I think, about as strong of a mandate to make a right turn on immigration as it is reasonably to it reasonable to expect going forward. I think, you know, he won only by a slim margin, but immigration was the central issue of his campaign. And so the mandate was there to take serious action. But uh, while immigration levels, the, the, the rate of immigration did drop significantly by the end of his term, there was still a net gain of a few hundred thousand a year. And by the time he left office, again, like the, 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 the most the hawk, the most hawkish immigration president we, we we've had in you know, many decades. Uh, by the time he left office, the number of foreign-born people living in the U.S. increased by about 3%, from 43.7 million to 45 million. Since Trump was pushed out of office, Biden has more than made up the difference for the decrease that he did achieve. For going on two years now, an average of about a quarter million illegal immigrants per month have been processed at the border virtually all of whom were just given a court date years in the future due to the case backlog and then released into the United States. In 2022 alone, 2.8 million people 
entered the country that way. And nobody, as far as I know, is expecting a real decline in 2023 or 24. Uh, in fact, potential migrants who are worried about Trump or another GOP immigration hawk being elected might accelerate their plans to make it here before things change. And that's just illegal immigrants. So, you know, it's not counting the number, the unknown number of migrants who come across the border without being detected uh, or the nearly one million legal immigrants that establish permanent residence every year. And so I made the point at the beginning of my thread explaining myself on this, that there are already today more non-white kids under 18 years old in the United States than there are white kids under 18. That is an accomplished fact. And so if all immigration were to stop tomorrow and not a single one was allowed in from now on, a non-white majority is baked into the cake. Uh, my position is that there is no way to roll back that basic demographic reality. Um, not that it's physically impossible to accomplish that, but that it would take a massive program of mass deportations for many years. And I think that the political consensus, again, necessary to sustain something like that is just, it, it's just utopian. It's not in the cards. Uh, so I want to share a few numbers and then I'll turn it over to the fellas. Um, you know, you can take a Gallup poll for what it's worth, but you, they've they've been running these polls on immigration long enough using the same methodology that even if the absolute numbers uh, don't work for you, if you think they're off, you can still see the trends. Uh, according to a 2022 Gallup poll, 58% of Americans want immigration levels to either increase or stay the same compared to 38% who would like to see the rate decrease. Uh, these numbers are after two years of Biden just flooding the country with record numbers of immigrants uh, and represent a kind of a reactionary shift compared to the last year of the Trump administration, 2020, when 70% of respondents said that they wanted either more or the same level of immigration compared to only 28% saying they wanted to slow it down. Go back to 2008, 46% of Republicans wanted to slow immigration down. And today that number has gone up to 69%. But the Democrats have gone even farther in the other direction, only 17% now favoring a slowdown in immigration. Um, I don't know what anybody who wants less immigration is doing in the Democratic Party in 2023. I guess that's a, a topic for a different show. Um, so among Republicans, only 15%, only 15% say immigration is the most important issue facing the country. Um, a significant statistic, I think, because to carry out the kind of radical changes that I think even the frogs admit would be necessary to reverse these trends, you would at the very least need virtual unanimity among Republicans that decreasing immigration was at the very top of our national priorities. 70% of all respondents to the poll said that immigration is a net good for the country. Only 24% said it had become a net negative. These numbers uh, still don't really reflect the difficulty here because the white population in general uh, and the population of people who say they want less immigration overall is older. And so the decline in both of those groups 
uh, it will accelerate as the boomers die off. And, you know, again, the, the already non-white majority of kids under 18 comes of voting age. Um, in fact, for the first time ever, over the last couple of years, white deaths have exceeded white births in America, a trend which I think people expect to continue, at least until the reaper is done with the boomers. Um, and finally, uh, among voters... 18 to 34 years old, 83% said immigration is mass immigration is a net good even now. Among voters 35 to 54, 76% said that. And even the lowest bracket, those aged 55 and older, uh, 57% of those people still said immigration, mass immigration is a net good. Um, and that it was bringing us more benefits than costs. And so the position I put forward is that, at the very least, uh, to repeat a point, near unanimity among the white population would be necessary to accomplish anything that would really matter. And not only is there no unanimity among white people, but the college-educated, upwardly mobile whites who actually run our society from the heights and within the managerial class are hugely in favor of mass immigration and their support for it goes beyond policy. You know, it's an important part of their class identity and what defines a good person to them. And so one last caveat I want to add is that although the, the, the base for immigration hawks is mostly white, it's not entirely white. Uh, and there are plenty of minorities who would like to see immigration levels drop. Uh, if those people were suddenly to elevate the issue to a high enough priority that that really significant numbers of minorities started voting for GOP immigration hawks, then maybe that would push us past a tipping point. But for a variety of reasons, I, I really don't think that's realistic um, in, in no small part because so many of the people who do favor drastic action to change these trends are completely unwilling to cooperate with minorities politically, even on an issue by issue basis. Something I saw in the criticisms of the thread I put up uh, when I, one of the biggest criticisms I got that brought out the most vitriol was when I suggested the possibility of actually working with uh, minority groups who are out there and conservative and want less immigration. Um, so in conclusion to my little opening monologue here, and then uh, I'll hand it over to you, Bronson. Um, I think that making dramatic changes to immigration policy at the federal level, if it's not impossible, is certainly not the most efficient use of our political energy. Uh, I was called a defeatist for saying that, but to those people, I say that I think you are the defeatist if you think that there are no more options and nothing left to fight for unless you get revolutionary changes in federal immigration policy. Uh, I think it would be a better use of your energy to accept that the time for averting what's coming passed decades ago and instead start planning for how to survive in the world that is no longer coming, but is already here. Uh, so, okay, I'm going to turn it over to Bronson, you first, um, because I want, please, I, I'm begging you, I want somebody to tell me why I'm wrong. So maybe. Okay, yeah, yeah I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start ahead. from the top. Um, so. Yeah, you know, just to adjust, you know, kind of your points sort of in order, uh, you know, if I miss something, I'll go back. But, um, you know, just the, the idea that there are, you know, the frogs, the frog avatars are, are coming after you. Um, I, you know, it's, it's good that you kind of bookended the, uh, 
the statement by saying, you know, the frog avatars were coming after you and, and the, the vitriol that was unleashed was, uh, you know, people criticizing uh, your suggestion that you work with the minorities. Um, kind of scattered throughout um, the points that you've made is, is that, you know, well, white Americans don't have, uh, you know, unity, uh, you know, there, there are more non-whites, uh, you know, under the age of 18 than, uh, by the way, it's like 30, uh, you know, than, than whites. Um, you know, I, I think that the kind of the through line through this is that, um, you know, ethnic Americans, uh, white Americans, heritage Americans, old stock Americans, uh, you know, look, demographically, they're being replaced. Uh, and this is just an inevitability. It's a mathematical reality. It's, it's a reality of how many wombs and how many births and, and how many, you know, citizenship roles are filled out, how many voters there are. And, uh, you know, really trying to contest that uh, would, re would require a kind of a racial solidarity among white voters that just doesn't exist. And, and in fact, if you look at, uh, you know, the people who really run things in society, the credentialed class, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the PMCs, um, you know, the managerial classes, uh, as Samuel Francis would say, if you look at that Leviathan of, of people, uh, they're, they're all basically united as an article of faith, uh, that, uh, that, that immigration, more immigration, uh, increasing immigration, uh, is is good and and anyone who disagrees is an anathema. Uh, all of that is true, and all of that is also a perfect argument for why we need to have uh, drag queen story hour. And drag queen story hour is not uh, a thing that we can really fight against anymore. All of that is all true and is structurally a perfectly good argument for uh, why gun control is uh, just gonna happen. We can't really uh, you know fight against that. Uh, all of that is true for, for basically every article of faith. Um, on the progressive left. Uh, all of the things that you mentioned are exactly the case for the transgender issue. They're exactly the case for the legalization of weed. They're exactly the case for the, the decriminalization of, of prostitution. Um, they're exactly the case for, uh, you know, uh, you know there, there's really no thing that the left wants that isn't held together basically by a coalition of college-educated, professionally aspirant, uh, you know, coastal uh, white people and a growing, um, you know, plurality, at least, of, of non-white voters. Every issue is like this. Um, so the, the idea that on immigration specifically, which is about actually the numbers, origins, um, and citizenship voting rights of, of people in this country, uh, the idea that on that issue in particular, you know, one should surrender uh, and then focus on the other issues, uh, I, I think is exactly incorrect, um, because that's the fastest possible route to all of those other issues, uh, just sort of overwhelming, actually, uh, any kind of electoral or political or material defiance. Um, you know, let's let's think about this polling, uh, for instance. You know, you can find polling, by the way, that says, you know, this is this is a, a Philadelphia Inquirer, August 9th, 2022 only 27% of Americans want to see more immigration to the United States, a drop of seven points in two years, according to new Gallup polling that reveals deep divides. Uh, fully 69% say admissions to this country should be cut or stay the same. Uh, you know, I, I'm not one for ruling by polls. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't really believe in a vox populi, vox dei, uh, because, you know, frankly, you know, the majority of people and, and, and poll respondents you know, a, a mass shooting happens, you ask a poll immediately after it, and people are for gun control. Um, you know, an abortion clinic uh, like, uh, like you know, Gosnell's abortion clinic is uncovered to have, you know, murdered, uh, you know, just obviously viable children. 
and people's attitudes on abortion shift. So I, I, I don't really think that the polls are so, uh, first of all, believable. Uh, but secondly, look, you know, w- whether things are popular or not doesn't stop the left. Um, you know, gay marriage in this country uh, was was overwhelmingly opposed. In fact, it was part of the GOP's platform to oppose it up until 2015 when the Supreme Court, uh, you know, with with the shenanigans and Obergefell said, hey, actually, you have to have it. Um, the idea of popular appeal, uh, appeal to all citizens, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as, a, as a boundary condition for what you can or can't get done, that doesn't ever stop the left. Um, and then, you know, thirdly, uh, you know, the, the idea that, um, you know, there's any other avenue, there are any other issues that could matter more, you know, on a, on a fundamental level, what immigration is about, uh, and I, I actually like using the term sovereignty, what immigration is about as an issue is who gets to live here and who makes the rules. It is about the physical control of space and the determination of order by people that own that space. The moment you decide that that is not the sole priority, the foundational priority, you've actually just converted uh, an entire nation into a, sub- a subjugated one. Um, a, you know, a people that cannot dictate what goes on in a physical space you know, they've they've decided actually the intruders run it. Um, someone else runs it. It's not them. It doesn't belong to them. They've actually ceded the moral grounds to determine all other issues. Um, you know, I, you know, all, all of us, I think, are, uh, you know, people with, uh, you know, we either rent or we own, but we we live in homes. Right. None of us are homeless. Um, we have domain over those places that we that we live in. Uh, you know, those dwellings are, are places of abode. We make the rules in them. Uh, we're the ones that determine, you know, <laughs> the interior decorating. We're the ones that determine uh, what, what bedtime is, right? We make the rules for our own physical space. Uh, that's not true for a place of public accommodation. That's not true for someone else's home where we're a guest. It's not true for a hotel room. Uh, you're actually living by someone else's rules in those circumstances. So, you know, the, the idea that you could possibly have the moral authority or build coalitions to overturn something like transgenderism against the same uh, class of white liberals and, and, you know, sort of their, you know, their, their coalition of the fringes uh, on, on that issue. Um, when you can't even determine who is or isn't allowed to vote, who is or isn't allowed into the country, uh, who has to be deported from the country. Uh, I, I find that very hard to believe. I, I find it basically outlandish that there could ever be uh, solidarity sufficient to overturn that. I mean, look, you know, uh, you know, Americans are are not, um, and I want to be careful also about about who I say is or is an American. Obviously, I was you know I was born and raised in the United States. Uh, you know, I I feel like this country is my own, but I wouldn't call myself ethnically American. Uh, I I wouldn't call myself part of the uh, American national stock. Uh, you know, um, but people who are. Uh, people who have, you know, bones in the ground, who have, uh, you know, histories, uh, sometimes reaching, you know, back several centuries, they really need to ask themselves, you know, what will we or won't we tolerate in terms of who gets to come here and who makes the rules? How, what kind of culture are they going to, uh, to uh, you know, enact uh, and, and transmit in public? Um, you know, to what degree will we be asked to, uh, to let people r- run roughshod over us? Because to surrender on the immigration issue is actually to surrender and is to basically leave that decision making up to everyone else. It's to say we have a system of majority rules. We have a system of an electoral college, which is still, you know, frankly, democratic 
where uh, where Kratia lies with the demos, right? Uh, you know, and if the demos changes, if the if the the graphene of the demos changes, right? If the demography changes, then so does the Kratia. That that is how uh, that's how the system works. So I, I I find it very unconvincing actually that you could ever find uh, any sort of constructive political path. Uh, material organization by private means uh, if you are willing entirely to surrender on immigration or think that because of certain demographic trends, because of polling, that uh, that this is not the primary issue actually on which to focus. I think it, it actually makes it all the more urgent. Um, it, it's really kind of a now or never thing. Uh, and, and then finally, you know, I, I'm happy to expand on all of these points. I just want to point out, you know, Scott and I, you know, part of the reason we tussle uh, a little bit on Twitter is, uh, you know, I voted for Trump. I supported Trump. I, you know, I, I, I loved Trump during the, the 2016 election. I was deeply disappointed uh, that in the first two years of his term leading into the midterms, he abandoned entirely his program of immigration restrictions, things that I thought he was elected on on a mandate, like, uh, you know, build the wall. Uh, they have to go back. You know, these these wonderful assertions of American sovereignty. Uh, you know, that turned into something else entirely. That turned into uh, jailbreaking criminals because Kim Kardashian wanted it. That turned into, uh, you know, bit, you know, just more of the same sycophancy for, for Israel. Uh, things that, uh, you know, you could have gotten from Jeb Bush. Um, so, you know, it's, it's true that, you know, Trump was elected as an immigration hawk. But, uh, you know, I, I, I just don't believe that we've tried immigration uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing the line, right? You know, real, real uh, immigration hawking has, has never been tried before. I, I really just don't believe that we've actually ever gotten uh, a fair play and a, a chance at, at remaking uh, immigration laws in this country. Um, not since, uh, not since 1965. I, I think, uh, I think the, the GOP and, and white voters more generally, um, you know, ethnic American voters more generally feel that they don't have the moral authority to stand up for themselves and say, look, we're going to determine who gets to make the rules in this house, precisely because of the race issue. They feel that um, if they were to advance a political organization uh, for their material interests as a nation, they would have to start pondering issues of who gets to be in that nation or not, who is actually an American. And the, the post-war experience of the whole Western world has been uh, precisely to abjure the idea that any of these national populations, whether they be Anglo-Americans, whether they be the English in England, uh, Australians in Australia, Germans in Germany, that any of these peoples, uh, you know, call them Europeans, call them whites, you know, wh whatever you like. Uh, the the post-war experience has been that none of them are allowed actually to advocate in their own material self-interest. So I think before we even approach the immigration issue in terms of a policy issue, we have to approach this uh, much more psychological, spiritual issue really, of, of asserting the national self-interest, having an understanding of oneself as a nation, and not feeling any need to apologize for, for materially organizing towards that end. When you said that what, like, what would first be necessary before we even start getting political changes is essentially like a, a total spiritual revival among white people in the United States. They have to completely transform the way that they've thought for decades on fundamental issues and then we can address ourselves to the massive institutional resistance to politically actually changing this issue. That, that's and, that's true. And, and I believe that's not just true for immigration. That's also true for the trans issue. That's yeah, also it, true for gay The marriage. trans issue, like, I, I, don't, I don't really think that's a great comparison for the simple reason that trans people are not 
are not set to be a majority of people in the country in, you know, 20 years, and they're not outbreeding cis people or, you know, anything it, like that. It, it actually has nothing to do with that. No, no. See, this is this is the thing. It, you know, you know, that that trans people are not the majority. And yet, uh, you know, look at look at, you know, Admiral, you know, Rachel Levine. OK, trans people are not the majority. And yet look at every institution around you. Look at the United States military. Look at every single large merchant and, uh, you know, a commercial bank. Look at every single, uh, you know, university. OK, you know, it, you, previously you said that, uh, you know, the, the, the people who really run our society, these these educated whites, uh, you know, liberal whites, fancy whites, you know, whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, maybe there are other terms, um, uh, you know, largely, I think, by the way, uh, white Americans whose ancestors were not here before 1965, but uh, or at least the, you know, before 1865. Um, you know, they even they aren't actually mostly trans, uh, you know, but just despite common belief, most of the people uh, uh, I'm being I'm being humorous, obviously, most of the people at Harvard who are white are not trans. Uh, <laughs> most most uh, most liberals are not trannies. They're not uh, they're not gay even uh, You know, maybe the proportions are a little bit elevated. Um, it's not actually that they believe that they have a majority that allows them to rule. What they have is a belief that they have every right to rule and every right to tell you what to do, even if the majority of people have a biological makeup that will never approach something like homosexuality or, or you know, an even worse mental pathology being, you know, quote, transsexual. Um, they don't care. They don't care that it's, you know, maybe a, a percentage of a percentage of the population. They don't stake their grounds for telling you what to do on that kind of majoritarian nonsense. They believe they have the right to rule. And that is the mentality, actually, which needs to be cultivated to overturn them. And that's okay. true for immigration. That's true for gun control. That's true for, for everything. All right. So I, I just realized we're like a half hour into this thing and only we've talked. So I'm going um, to go to you, Ben. And uh, if you want to respond to anything in particular, he said, um, do that. Otherwise, uh, but, but also, I mean, like the thing I'm concerned with is the level of political will that would be necessary to forcibly override uh, the resistance that would come through and sustaining that political will for decades, just for the simple reason that like, again, uh, you know, the, the entire decrease in the rate of immigration that Trump achieved has been made up for three times over in two years of the Biden presidency. Uh, that, you know, you would need a president who was willing to simply ignore the Supreme Court, who wouldn't even allow Trump to put a citizenship question on the census, who wouldn't allow him to countermand the, uh, you know, the previous president's executive orders. And you would need a president who, you know, would ask, okay, well, well, you know, where's the Supreme Court's army? I don't, I don't care. And I'm going to do what I want. They would have to, and that's just one thing they would have to be willing to just override Probably in an unconstitutional way, certainly in a way that is you know, that, that, that we really haven't seen in in a really long time in the country. Uh, but okay, I'm going to turn it over to Ben though. Um, yeah, so a uh, couple points I had, um, kind of tagging off of what you were talking about earlier. You know, I think staying engaged on this it's still important because you know even if we're past the point of no return uh, for whether or not we'll be a white majority country. Uh, it still, you know, could be determinate whether or not we end up having the demographics of Brazil or the demographics of South Africa. And people talk about the Brazilification of the U.S. 
and um you know in very uh dark terms but you know i i enjoy visiting brazil and uh it, there are a lot of positives there <laughs> and uh i'm not i'm not as optimistic as some people are that that's the that's what we're heading for i think we're uh heading for something much more dysfunctional uh so you know staying engaged on that all right it, it may be too late to uh you know to return to old stock uh, demographics in the United States, but I don't think it's too late to forestall the worst, worst case scenario. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, we're talking about the problem of the, you know, upper class, class whites and how they've been, uh, quizzlings on this issue, right? They, they'll go along with whatever, uh, new psyop is coming down the line. I think in large part, it's because, the right has been really good in making the case for immigration restrictionism from a uh, position of kind of us versus them, right? How uh, mass migration negatively impacts Americans uh, in our own communities, uh, American workers, wages, this sort of thing. Uh, but what gets left out a lot is that you know, my, mass migration is not great for the migrants, either because in in most cases these uh conditions are horribly exploitative it's a extremely dangerous trip that they make through the desert a lot of it based off of a perception of american life that they get from uh american media so they watch you know reality show like keeping up with the kardashians or something and think that that's kind of the norm here right that people just uh they have easy prosperity and, you know, they end up uh, working, uh, picking blueberries, you know, chained up inside of a shipping container. I mean, there, there's recent uh, work done in the New York Times and some other papers on how uh, some invest- some great investigative reporting on how kids as young as 12 years old are working in these chicken uh, processing plants and, you know, other really dangerous, uh, really bad jobs. and you know, lower the minimum wage, this kind of thing. So there's a lot, you know, it's a, it's an issue of modern day slavery. And it, it makes me uh, kind of chuckle when I see, you know, all of these people that have extremely strong opinions on the civil war and, you know, on the, the moral righteousness of the North and all of that, you know, pretending as if uh, slavery really is a thing of the past in America, when the labor conditions of, a lot of these people, it's, it is slavery. So, you know, we have that going on and, you know, that's, that's just laying on the table and I don't see a lot of people on the right making the arguments that, that, you know, this is actually a moral problem and that no, the establishment and the left do not have a moral high ground in promoting mass migration. Uh, you know, they, they, and they've set it up very successfully in, in making it seem like, you're a bad person if you have a problem with what's happening. And the reality is there's very few winners in all of this. And some of the biggest losers are the migrants themselves. And, you know, I see some of them who they get here, they work hard, uh, save up for decades, and then and then they send their kids to an American college. And it's so over, you know, they, they come out of college trans or uh, something else. And, 
you know, they just totally succumb to the, uh, the American system now of, uh, public schooling and how that processes and indoctrinates children. I uh, see that a lot with immigrant kids. And in, in fact, uh, immigrant kids are, I think, the, the most recent study uh, on gender pediatrics. Uh, they're the, the group that is receiving the highest, uh, it's the highest percentage of the population that's going on puberty blockers, uh, gender affirming care, whatever else. So, you know, you have all of that that's going on. And also, it's not great for the countries that these people are coming from, because they're losing a lot of their best population. And I mentioned being in El Salvador, uh, and El Salvadoran governments now looking at, you know, how do we get, uh, how do we get people to come back? And now that's safe. And they're seeing a lot of interest, actually, in uh, self repatriation, you know, El Salvadorans living in the United States, who see that, you know, now that Bukele has conducted these operations against the uh, MS-13 and the 18th Street Gang and other criminal organizations, you know, it's now uh, safer than the United States, uh, which is really something, because El Salvador was the most dangerous place in the Western Hemisphere not that long ago. And, you know, now it's safer than Los Angeles. So can I can I just jump in real quick? Um, You know, because that points at... um at a point that I, I tried to make in that thread, a suggestion that I put forward in the thread, which, uh, you know, as I said uh, there, I, I don't think is probably very likely to happen, but it's a different approach. And I think, honestly, probably one that's more likely to help long-term with the uh, mass immigration issue than addressing any of these things, like politically at our federal level to to stem the tide. And that's something like a Marshall Plan for, you know, Central America. Something that would uh, you know make those countries more attractive to the people living there, make them feel like they don't have to flee to the United States, and even like you said there to you know maybe induce some of the people who still have patriotic feelings toward their old countries to maybe go back if things weren't uh, as broken down as they are. I, I seems- don't think that's quite right. Um, I don't think that's quite right at all. You know, in, India and Bangladesh have a, a huge land border. And uh, the the state of Bengal that Bangladesh borders, you know, all of the people in, you know, that state and those countries, they just speak Bangladeshi. Overwhelmingly, they're all Muslim. They're all ethnically the same. India's approach to the illegal immigration issue from Bangladesh is just we're going to build a large fence. It's actually it's, you know, heavily patrolled, lots of barbed wire, machine guns, dogs, searchlights, the whole nine yards. Every every other nation, their approach to this issue is not actually to try and encourage people to stay. It's just to say, you can't come here. Um, they're, not, they're not trying to make it any easier. Um, I, I, I think sharply reducing the legal protections, the comforts, the employment ease, um, drastically increasing deportations in the United States, making the United States unpalatable to be in if you're illegally well, here. Oh, real quick, that, and, that and would then be I'll better. Lee, I really appreciate your patience on this, but like, you know, I'm from California. We had Proposition 187 back in the 90s, which very straightforward uh, and very reasonable proposition that if you are here illegally, you can't benefit from welfare and other uh, social just social welfare programs in general. And that got struck down. It, it, it I can't remember what it, the exact numbers were, but that was put to a referendum. This wasn't something that was passed by the state legislature. This was a referendum. People went to the polls and voted at a time when immigration was a very hot issue in the early 90s. 
And it won by like 20, 25 points. Massive, massive landslide, despite, you know, media attacks on all the people supporting, et cetera. Massive victory. And, you know, a court stepped in and said, no, 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 no. By doing that, you guys are trying to set immigration policy, which is the purview of the federal government only. Therefore, you can't do this. And California said, well, you know, okay, like, what are we going to do? Defy the courts. And so California is a lost cause now, of course. Now, fast forward a few decades, California wants to be a sanctuary state directly interfering, like not in an indirect way at all, directly trying to interfere with the setting of federal immigration policy. And they got backed up by the courts. And so, you know, this is this is the kind of resistance that I'm talking about, that you would really have to have uh, somebody some, like uh, not just a person, but then the institutional capacity to execute like these things. You know, look at the look at the resistance that Trump got just trying to pull true a couple troops out of. Uh, Syria. I, I, I agree, but you'll never get that institutional resistance. You'll, you'll never be. I lost you. You there? Let's go over to Lee. Anything you want to respond here, Lee? I know it's like we're kind of jumping around a little bit. Why don't you just take it wherever you want? Well, real, real quick on the uh, on the Marshall planning, you know, there is that's happening uh, in a microcosm. It, it is uh, some USAID is doing some programs and uh, at least Guatemala and El Salvador. And, you know, they're doing it in conjunction with what uh, the deals that were struck by the Trump administration and. Uh, also through Congress to uh, increase the number of H-2B visas, which are temporary seasonal work visas. And so what happens is uh, it's a it's a safe legal way for people to come work in the United States for like six to nine months. Uh, it's seasonal jobs, which are really hard to fill because, you know, there's not a lot of uh, itinerant wandering Americans, right? We don't really have Okies anymore uh, that are just following the harvest and that sort of thing. So when you have like uh, hotels that only operate in the summertime or golf courses or all that, that, you know, they have staff that they only need a certain part of the year. And it's, it's hard to fill that with. Uh, and sometimes you can, they, they do a hybrid. So they'll have uh college students and high school students who can work the summers and they just need a few guys for like April and September, right. To, to book in the process. But anyway, you know, it, it is a labor need that's been very hard to fill since uh, COVID has come along, but it doesn't change the demographics of the country. Uh, it, you know, people, it's kind of like a working holiday visa and uh, except you're tied to one employer. So, you know, the Scandinavians have been able to do this to where they've been able to take care of their labor needs, but without uh, changing their demographics. You know, I, I think it's the model for a country that has a declining fertility rate. You know, at least for at least some period of time, we're going to have to accept the reality that we do need uh, a level of labor that we just aren't producing ourselves, right? Like we have to uh, increase the fertility rate and then let that set for 20 years before we're going to have enough like young people to uh, fill all the holes in the labor market. Uh, but in, until that time, and you know, you can, you can do this in a way to where it doesn't permanently alter your demographics. Uh, they don't vote. 
and it Im- improves the situation back in their home countries. And I was talking to a guy who's working on this with uh, DHS, and he was explaining that, you know, it could take three, four, five years for one of these people to get a, uh, a job through the visa lottery program because there's only a certain number of slots that are open. But they might wait that period of time. And, you know, because they have some shot at coming legally, they would much rather do that than go the illegal route, which involves paying a lot of money to smugglers. Uh, it's very dangerous. You, you know, you could end up in a press gang type situation, what you got here, et cetera, et cetera. So it has th- this program has this kind of multiplication of force to where, uh, let's say we're taking in a hundred thousand people. Well, that can prevent half a million just because we've established this and they'll, they're willing to wait longer to come the right way uh, and go back. That's the crucial thing that we're not changing demographics here. And, you know, that, that's something that uh, it helps the countries that are there because they're not losing their workers permanently, but their workers are getting some experience and professions uh, and getting some savings. So they're able to come back, start businesses, that sort of thing. And, you know, we are seeing the effects of that uh, in who's showing up at the border. So there has been a really significant decline in illegals that have come from uh Northern Triangle countries, so El Salvadorans, Hondurans, and Guatemalans, not getting nearly as many of those now. Now it's more you know, Nicaraguans and Venezuelans and Haitians. Yeah, we got you now, IB. Um, okay, good. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I really appreciate that, Ben. That um, the, the fact that you're putting out concrete policy proposals that that, that might actually help address the issue. It's something I, I would like to hear from Bronson if. Uh, you know, from that angle of it in a minute, but I want to go over to Lee because you've been uh, very patient. Lee, since uh, we've taken so long to get to you, I am just going to give you total freedom. You have the floor. Uh, anything you'd like to address, you go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to kind of set the stage a little bit and um, hopefully this will help. I think a lot of folks that are really troubled about this, maybe give them a little breath of hope. Um, I think we need to understand that most of our, almost all of our fundamental assumptions about the world are going to be changing in this moment that we're living in. Uh, This is really important, I think, for those of us that are challenging the institutional narratives that are looking at these, you know, perennial issues in the post-war American regime and trying to fix them. I think it's, it behooves us to be as agile as possible and to, uh, and to kind of free our assumptions a little bit about the world that we're entering in now. And, and the reason being is U.S. hegemony, I think you can say, is, is mostly ended. Um, and with that comes, as its lifeblood, globalization, it, it, it is greatly changed. And it will, and I would, I would put this out here, that most of the, the problems that we're analyzing and then the solutions we're coming up with are still stuck in that post-war regime world in which globalization serves as the lifeblood of of this system and that the system functions according to these same inputs and it produces these same outputs and that policy to address these issues that policy is is a, almost like a science that functions in this in this like laboratory that we've got going i i want people that are listening especially those of you who are just regular folks like me everyday people you you kind of have to toss that out in some ways notice that like most of the discussions that we have about these issues start 
going from concrete policy proposals into like, we need to change the culture. You know, we need to, we need to develop, you know, we need to harness the new spirit of the age. And they, they become these abstractions that, you know, I, I don't discount. I think that's an important conversation, but it really doesn't give us, it doesn't empower us to actually do very much. Um, And I, I also think that they become wildly inaccurate when we, when we start looking at the type of world that we're walking into, which we really don't understand quite yet. So, you know, I would submit to the group here that like this system, this U.S. hegemony that we have kind of put most of our assumptions on that has shaped how we view the world, this system is ending and ending quickly. Um, and I do think that, you know, these last gasps of the regime, you know, these these global war, relying on the assumption that we can continually wage war, um, you know, looking at issues like mass immigration as a that it will continue to go apace the same way it's been done and that there will be a complete replacement, you know, while those trends unabated would probably continue on, I don't think that the capacity, the institutional capacity will be there. This doesn't mean that they're not problems. This doesn't mean our elites will not try to do this, but it does mean that we actually have a lot more leverage than I think we understand and that those who stand to lose the most in coming years aren't just like your regular rank and file people. It's the same elite class that we're discussing. They have a tremendous amount to lose right now. They understand this. I would, I would submit to you that the reason why we see this panic it, from our elites, it seems so incoherent and disjointed, even desperate is because they recognize that they are losing ground in, in the things that matter. The monopoly money situation is changing. Right. So I think we have to just when we look at problems like this that become like a, a problem of scale, we really need to consider the the capacity limits that our adversaries are working with. So I want to put this out here is that like when we look at things like birth rates and when we look at things like immigration numbers, we don't regionalize these things. And this is one of the this is a flaw, I think, in the way that we think here is because like with a decline in a global order, which we are seeing, it means a rise in regional orders. That doesn't just mean Russia and China. That means within the United States. I think we have to realize that like the United States is enormous and geography is a huge determinant of what happens in this country. And we're seeing trends uh, going branching out from looking at our urban areas and looking at places like New York, which was our financial capital of the of the world. You're seeing major trends that show that there's not going to be a type of recovery, that you're going to have new hubs that are opening up across the United States in places like the heartland, that the birth rates in the heartland among conservative Americans, you can call them old stock Americans, that those those are not following the same trends and they disappear when you start aggregating this all together. And I think it looks like a hopeless picture. So apologies for like the the sermon here, but I here's here's how I look at the problem is like these crucial questions like immigration are being distorted by like a national political theater. It becomes a question over like where to put up a border. It comes over like, how do we slam the door shut? Like, I think that these are valuable things. I don't think you should abandon this ground, but like, I think we all need to have like a reasonable heart to heart with ourselves and say, how much do we have influence over, over this, these questions? Really? What does it come down to? Let's look at the granular level. Like it comes down to me giving money to a candidate Maybe me talking and praising a candidate on Twitter. Like what else? Maybe organizing for the the candidate and then hoping that all these things will be accomplished. You know, and and this is where I think we need to start looking at the battlefield terrain in a lot more reasonable way. 
we really need to grow up and take a real hard look at like what we're doing. Are we are we like throwing our aspirations into a black box and hoping that something wonderful will come out? And I, I would argue that most of us do this. Now, where this doesn't work, where the gobbledygook dries up and white, where, you know, these abstract discussions just do not hold much weight is at a local level. This is where like questions of like real world capacity, like not only when I'm building a sidewalk, but what's underneath the sidewalk, what does my sewage system look like? Like these are questions that like intellectual types don't like grappling with because it's the real world. But this is actually where I think we have the most street cred. This is where we have the most ability to address even issues like immigration. And this is the thing is I we have this machinery left over from the old order, which is local governments, we have local organizations and institutions, which a regular everyday person has so much more leverage over. And even though we're in an asymmetric fight here, these places that have actual power are up for grabs. And there have been many efforts made at local levels, which do not attract that large national theater that crushes these efforts. You're not swimming upstream into the heights of the institutions. You're literally, you literally have ground in the areas in which you stand. And, and, you know, if you, if you look at this, like on concrete policy proposals, you know, you can't, it's, you can't rely entirely on ice to do all of the heavy lifting on here. There is a lot of gray area and prerogative that these positions, these local positions, let's sheriff's office, your county council, your town council, making municipal laws, these things can all drive changes in these policies and apply upward pressure. The problem is, is nobody is taking advantage of this because we're hyper-focused on this national spectacle. And the national spectacle feels good at first, but it, at the end of the day, like how many times have we been disappointed by this focus where it doesn't actually serve the interests that we have, where at the end of the day, like the where the rubber meets the road, where like the actual concrete changes in the world that we live in, like as in our communities, does not change substantially compared to how much energy and time and money we throw into this. So I'm not encouraging people to walk away from national politics or not to look at national level immigration issues as not unimportant. What I'm saying is, is that you need to be realistic with the ground you live in. And you need to recognize like your attempts to try to save the whole country on your own are mostly like it, it's it's mostly like a it's it's delusional, really, that you have the ability to affect a lot more change in your local community. You have a lot more you have a lot more ability to get those relationships and be that 10 percent that shows up to meetings that goes on to school boards and just starts to turn this around. The last thing I'll say on this is just. You know, this immigration is one of those things that we have to have a cultural change. This feeds into the same mythos of the of the civil rights regime. Notice that every time you address immigration as an issue of its on its own, it gets reduced to a moral argument that very much like tailors with the same way we talk about just civil rights. It's viewed only on the national level. You know, the the arguments that win are are phrased in that same type of language. And that's for a reason. And notice that like the civil rights regime, which was really built around for addressing a problem of descendants of slaves in this country, has been expanded to incorporate a, you know, tens of millions of people who have been in this country for a very short period of time that do not have that same language and don't even have that same those same interests. So this is the problem that we're facing. If you want to take on that regime all on your own, or if you hope that, that you can elect somebody that will have that power to do that, 
you know, I think that that's not necessarily like a bad thing to view it that way and to try to put your shoulder to the wheel there. But I think we have to be realistic here that the most the most change that we can affect is going to be regional. And like I said, with the the collapse of some of these international this international order as it's in retreat in many in many places, it's going to have an effect here that will galvanize efforts at a more regional and local level. The problem is we're not prepared for this. You know, we have been focusing so much time and attention, millions and millions of dollars being put into like these national level campaigns that often turns into just like spectacles. And then we don't have coalitions at a local level. We don't have coordinated efforts to address these issues in a very creative way. People that have the prerogative to in the gray area to address issues more creatively at a more closer to the ground where they're also not attracting the interest of like major newspapers and the media circus that often pressures people out of making substantial changes. So, you know, this is not, I don't have like a magic, like I don't have a silver bullet or a magic pill that will fix this. And unfortunately that's what our national politics often promises. So what I would argue is that where most of us, if we take a deep look at ourselves and what our capabilities are, I would rather us devote more of our time and attention into focusing on these as and addressing the regional aspects of what we're dealing with here and noticing where we're succeeding because we are succeeding in some of these regional places. The birth rate in Heartland America among conservative old stock Americans is doing very well. Like that's something that's a that's a win right there that you are retaining, you know, the culture of your area or your way of life. But if we continue to focus solely on the spectacle and we continue to look at these aggregated statistics and trying to come up with, you know, going to like the faculty lounge to come up with theoretical ways to attack this, I just fear that this will become another lost, more lost ground in this ongoing battle. Okay, I love that, that I couldn't agree with everything you just said, probably more than I do. And it was a much more uh, in-depth and eloquent way of stating most of the points that I was trying to make in that thread the other day. You know, the fact is there are whole regions of this country that are defensible. Doesn't mean that you'll win that battle for them, but they are defensible within the institutional framework that currently exists, right? Um, you People people will, will say, and people did say when I brought it up that you can go to, you know, take over a state, take over a series of states, municipalities, but, you know, the feds, they don't, they don't care about the constitution, whatever. And I say, that's fine. Make them cross that Rubicon and then we can deal with the world as it is when we get there. Uh, Bronson, I want to go back over to you because I don't, I, at least what I'm hearing, I think you don't agree with two things, at least that he said. Uh, one is he, you know, Lee said that having this issue framed in primarily moral terms, uh, is 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 not the right way to to frame it if if we're going to make any progress. Uh, it sounds to me like you're that, that you think it we that, that it is a moral issue and that that does need to be the focus. And then secondly, um, it you know it does sound to me that you think uh, keeping our focus on the national theater, as uh, Lee called it, as opposed to trying to work for things that can be preserved and accomplished at lower levels of states and, and counties and municipalities uh, is, is not the way to go. So feel free uh, well, to- well uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll figure, I'll figure my own position. Um, so no, I, I would disagree with both of those characterizations. Um, so on, on the first uh, look, you know, to contrast between a, a moral framing and a material framing, uh, I, I think is, uh, I, I don't think it's 
possible to do. So like, you know, uh, you know, why, why is it good to take care of the people we love? Uh, on, on the one hand, we have like kind of this moral instinct that it's a good thing. And, uh, but then, you know, someone from, uh, maybe, maybe an evolutionary or anthropology, you know, studies department would say, well, you know, your, your, uh, your hominid ancestors benefited by taking care of their fellow man or their fellow primate. And so that's why you have that impulse. It's, it's good for you materially to take care of those genetically related to you. Uh, nationalism is really just a, a stepped up version of that. I think both of those things are true. Um, and so I, I don't, um, I don't think there's a difference between really a moral or material framing when it comes to uh, who is allowed to be in this space and who gets to make the rules. I think actually the moral and material framing are one and the same. Um, and part of the reason I think progressives win so often is they have a, a telos. They have a moral telos in mind. They believe that they are the people who are qualified morally to determine material ends. Uh, so, so that's the first thing. The second thing on, on the local issue, look, I mean, I, I, I strongly believe that people should absolutely maximize their local power to the degree that you can take over a municipality and have it run basically by your family and friends. You should do that. That's a great thing to do. Um, I think it's something that's underexplored by the right. It's underexplored by uh, conservatives. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very much pro the idea of network states, charter cities. Uh, private developments. Uh, I often give the example of Kiryas Joel. Kiryas Joel in upstate New York is an entirely Orthodox Jewish town. Everything about the town, from its its town council to its its municipal services, all of the people who live there, all of them are Orthodox Jews. All of them agree with one way of life. They all support one another. It's one of the poorest places in America on paper um, because there's high welfare usage. Hey, if you go there, it's not one of the poorest places in America. It's very very well to do. Um, and they understand themselves as a people with solidarity. And so within a system like the United States, they can do incredibly well for themselves. The thing that they have that, uh, you know, old stock Americans don't have is that solidarity. The reason they can achieve those material ends at a local level is because that is the level at which they have asabia. That is the level at which they have, um, you know, just total dedication to one another. So often. Uh, you know, people will say things like, well, you know, but but whites are divided. Uh, well, Americans are divided, all of this and that. So we don't really have the, the moral force to do it. Well, you know, look at look at uh, look at the ethnic groups and how they vote for for immigration restriction at the national level. It, you know, Latino Americans know very well what their material interests are. Uh, <laughs> they're not they're not confused about it and they're not ashamed of it either. They have they have no shame about it as well. You know, voto Latino. Uh, one of these one of these groups, um, you know, it's it's just Latin vote in Spanish. They 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 understand this unity of the moral and the material. So when I say that uh, immigration is the issue, but the, what I'd really rather say is sovereignty uh, rather than immigration. What I mean is this this moral transformation where you understand that, um, you know, as a nation, Americans need to understand this as a nation that they have every right to dictate the terms and conditions of, of this place that they call home. Uh, you know, maybe the United States as a polity is not quite the vehicle, right? You know, maybe this is better done in a patchwork way. You know, there, there are things like this, right? The Republican Governors Association essentially says, hey, we're never going to convince all the senators, but maybe we can convince all the governors of these states. You know, that's, that's a productive way of looking at it. Um, 
you know, uh, different uh, different states had sort of compacts during uh, during COVID. There's the uh, the interstate voting compact, you know, try and you know destroy the electoral college. Um, there are lots of ways for people to organize. Uh, there are lots of things that can be done at every any number of level. But what you need to have at whatever level you're acting is you need to have absolutely clear moral vision that your way is the best way. Um, and that, in fact, it doesn't matter what anyone wants uh, because it's your home. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not it's not a negotiation. And that's that's the, that's the, the, the character and the spirit that I find most lacking uh, in, in the Western world uh, writ large today, actually. OK, um, I mean, you say it's not a negotiation and, uh, you know, would that that were true. Uh, but that, that is exactly how progressives think about this. They don't <laughs> think it's a negotiation. Well, look, we also just need to be creative. Like if we, uh, instituted a policy of open borders for beautiful women, we would turn like the female voting demographic, uh, against immigration. Like th- the women would just go down to the border themselves. You'd have like, uh, you know, wine moms. Well, yeah, I, that, that's that's an amusing <laughs> thought. Uh, you know, I I certainly would. You know, I'm I'm you know sure open borders for hotties. Uh, I, I agree with Berlusconi, but we instituted a policy of you know what what does that mean? Who whose policy is it? How did you take control of of border border security? How did you win the sense? You know, the, to 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 think that there are policy ends that can be achieved before you have alignment among a large enough group of people to enact that policy with no recourse to those who disagree, uh, I, I think is the, is, the, is the continual mistake of the right wing. They believe that there is some sort of, uh, there, there's some way that they can negotiate out a peaceful settlement uh, between gentlemen. They believe that there's some grounds to which they can retreat where they won't be harassed. And that's not true. They have to find, and they have to keep increasing the level. They have to find the level at which they can organize, act with total solidarity, and win without question, uh, conquer entirely. Um, and this is this is how the left operates because it has a vision of what it wants to do. You're not part of it. We're not part of it. Uh, they they actually believe in total replacement. They believe in completely getting their way, and they're doing it with the trans issue, right? Uh, that's that's why I disagreed from the outset that there could be any other issue besides the immigration issue. You know, really, it's just it comes down to to political sovereignty. Uh, they don't have moral buy-in from the rest of the world on on transgenderism, uh, and yet they act, and yet they win. They they act and win because they control the institutions. Right? Why do, so why do they, they, they control the institutions? They put decades of work into that. Yeah. How, and, how what what were they doing for all those decades? Do you think? Why don't you tell me? So, you know what they were doing for all those decades? They were ensuring that every single person understood that their social life, their cultural life, their material life was contingent on agreeing with them. What what did they do to agitate for tenure in the universities? What did they do to ag- agitate for the uh, the passage of the Civil Rights Act? What did they do to agitate for, uh, you know, the, the programming that, uh, you, know, I mean, you know, look at the Hayes Code and then look at, uh, you know, wet ass pussy. Uh, you know, how did they win these victories? By being completely obstreperous, by being completely unified, by spending the money, by taking care of one of them. You know, just this week I saw in the, in the New York Times, King, King's College in Manhattan is closing down. So it's, it's an evangelical Christian college in Manhattan, and it requires of its faculty to sign a statement, 17 articles of biblical faith. 
effectively just professing that that someone's a Christian, they follow the, the Nicene Creed. That's closing down. Can you imagine a, a single university churning out committed progressives in the deep south that would be allowed to go under? There would be millions, if not billions of dollars and organization and action you know, from, from the left to ensure that not only was this a university, that there were more graduates of the university. That is exactly what they have done. And, you know, something like this, it just, it's met with total lassitude. Oh, New York's a lost cause. New York's at Manhattan. Why do we want to have a Christian college there? You know, the, 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 there's a, a total lack of imagination, I find, on the right. You know, I, I, think, I think Lafayette Lee's idea that you, you really should be local, you should act where you have the most force, I think that's a beautiful idea. But to act with the most force, to act in, in concert with efficaciousness means acting in, with totality. It should not be a question of, well, what can we get away with? It should be, what is the level at which we get all of the marbles? And then how do we get to the next level? How do we get to the next level? What is the next thing where we can displace them and rule and actually make them do what we want? Not to, to negotiate with them to say, what is it that we can all live with? No, to force them to live the way you want to live. That's what it actually means to have sovereignty. That's what it means to rule. And the idea that uh, you can't desire to force other people to live the way that you want to live, I think is basically the, the, the core spiritual surrender of the right on this issue. That's certainly not a surrender that I make. Uh, but I think you're ignoring just the reality of power distribution as it is right now in the country. I mean, when I say uh, to focus on states and localities, I'm not saying retreat to an area where you're not going to be harassed. They are going to come for you. I'm saying retreat to an actual defensible position, trying to trying to change the course of the whole country on this. I mean, I I just think if we didn't have any time limit on this, then I would, uh, you know, sure. uh, my, my, My opinion on this would be different. But every single day, this becomes demographically just more and more difficult every single day that passes. And so we don't have decades to reconquer uh, institutions that have been taken over by the left. We don't have decades to completely spiritually transform and intellectually transform the way uh, white people and conservative people think in this country. We just don't. What we, you know, uh, I mean, we've lost California. We've, you know, it's, we're, we're probably losing Arizona. We're going to lose. We probably lost Nevada. We lost Colorado. When are we going to lose Texas? It's, you know, we're going to reach a tipping point at a certain point where states and localities are simply going to have to give up their their uh, you know religious attachment to preserving this like the, the grand American project as their as their great grandfather. So, so I don't understand. You, you've just said we need to focus on states and localities. The national fight is unwinnable, but we'll reach a point where states and localities have to give up. So you know. No, no, which no, no, no. is what's what's what the what level at which you're willing to say no, no, no. I no didn't matter say, how bad things get we are going up. to be in opposition i didn't say give up i said there's going to come a point where they're going to have to simply that they're going to have to give up their religious attachment to the american project as their great grandfathers handed it down to them and realize that there are regions of the country that are that they can defend but even there they're going to have to fight in a way that is going to defy uh, the, the the larger American project in a lot of ways. Lee, I know you uh, said you kind of have to, uh, you, you've got a, a time limit on your ability to be here. So I'll let you jump in. Yeah, I just, here's, here's how I would, I'd look at this is, you know, I see this as, you know, we're, we're coming in the shadow of, of a, of a regime that saw America as this distinct polity that the way that we often view the country that was kind of new. I mean, this is like, 
this this grand vision from the New Deal is something we've lived with for a very long time, but has not always been like endemic to the, the United States as a, as a country, right? Um, there, I think we're going to start changing the way that we view ourselves and this thing that we that we're a part of. I'm not saying I necessarily like appreciate well, where we're going with this. I mean, it's just this is changing. There's really not much we can do about that. You know, the old symbols and ways that we looked at the country before, I think, are, are under a great deal of strain. But but to be honest, they weren't always there in that, you know, manifested that way. What I would say, though, is that, you know, those of us who are on the right and maybe we don't live in like a heartland state where it, you know, you can you can see a lot of these things happening off in the distance, maybe once or twice in your own area. Um, but but we're, we're seeing this all over. In, in our own communities, you know, we have to start to, you know, to take kind of like a, a global war on terror way of looking at this is like, you know, we are very regionally defined and we don't, I don't think we realize that. And it, it trans, it, it really goes between borders, even of, of states, you know, your parts of Tennessee, for example, are, are totally, you know, there's one half that is entirely different than the other. Uh, these regional these regional aspects of our like of our experience here in America are really really important. They were always really important, and and we have kind of we're coming back into a period of time which we're, those are going to become a lot more important. And why I say this is is that this is an asymmetric fight. The strains that are getting put that we're seeing on the global order is is being manifested also in Washington. It might not seem that way, but there are there's a great deal of strain on these institutions and. And it is going to limit the capacity in which Washington is able to affect the the kind of change that it might envision. Okay, and so what I would say is this is like this is an asymmetric. Can, can, can I just I, just because yeah. I don't want to lose this one thought, and then I'll um, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, I think you're right that institutional capacity is in terminal decline in Washington D.C., but institutional capacity is not required to continue to facilitate mass immigration. That, that is the default massive institutional capacity is necessary to stop it. Well, well, could I, could I interject here? I would say this. It's all you now. Oh yeah, no, I appreciate that. That's a good point because the thing is though, is that what does immigration put the most strain on it puts a lot more strain on that, those institutions and those things that, you know, it puts a lot of, of, of additional strain on the services that you have, on the welfare state that we're attempting to maintain through all this debt. I mean, these are stressors that it, that immigration puts a great deal of weight on. And in the past, we could ignore through the prosperity and through globalization as we were enjoying it before. That That is not there as much. And it's going to continue to be more and more difficult. And we're going to see more of these problems take a like take a national stage where everybody's going to see some of the limits of this in ways that they couldn't before. My argument on here is this is this is something we have to capitalize on. It's not a great thing. We don't like what's happening, but this is an opportunity. And in an asymmetric yes. fight, this is something we have to take advantage of. I would argue this is like I, you know. And my own local experience is this, is the people that make the most difference do not hold a title. They don't hold a position. They don't have an elected office. You would never know who they were. The New York Times will never publish anything, you know, a smear on these people because they don't even know that they exist, but they control everything at my local level. Okay. We, and I don't, I don't want to say this because it will get taken out of context, but it's very much, it reminds me of the way our adversaries fought in the global war on terror. It was very hard to attack a target that doesn't exist, that doesn't form itself according to some entity, right? 
You know, yeah. it's easy to take down a 501c4. It's easy to go after a political party. It's easy to go after a business that isn't complying. It is very hard to fight an enemy you cannot see, you cannot name. And this is the approach that I have seen succeed at a local level. This is the approach yes. I've also seen buttress those failing institutions. This is something that I, I, you know, I can't fix immigration. I want it to be fixed. But I, I think that the regular rank and file people need to understand that they are armed with certain tools. And they have certain opportunities that if they can look at this problem a little differently, if they can manage their expectations and attack it in a pragmatic way, that they're going to see a lot more success. And what success does is it will build that identity that we're talking about. It will change the culture in their areas. It will challenge the assumptions that came before. And people like to win. And I'm telling you, like one, you know, once you start winning at the local level, once you start actually doing something or you have power suddenly, it it creates an effect in which people that get things done they they flock to you and you feel a lot more empowered the despair and the you know the black yeah. pilling that we see it it just that i feel like those are symptoms of people that feel powerless and that are staring at this massive cliff in a national scale way and it just feels impossible but th- these things can be addressed at a at a more realistic level so yeah, I, I, I totally agree. That's why that's why I brought up you know Curious Joel. It's like you know there, there's no organization. Um, you know they didn't say, look, we as Orthodox Jews intend to take over this town, rename it Curious Joel, and to the exclusion of all others, make sure that our people own every single home, are all of the registered voters, and run the government in perpetuity. They never said that. They never set it out in a document. They didn't create a new political party. They just did it. Okay. And, and, you know, you know, good for them. Um, it, it's actually, it, it's an amazing achievement. Um, there are a couple other communities like this in the United States. Ave Maria, Florida is one of them. Uh, Islamburg, New York, which is actually called that. They actually named it Islamburg. Um, you know, there, there are these religious communities where people said, look, we know who we are. We're going to do what we want to do. We don't have to make ourselves legible, uh, to the outside world. So the outside world can interfere in it. Well, and can I also step in just for a second? Something that I think gets lost is we talk about why the right fails. One of the reasons the right fails is because we need competent people that not only can fight on these issues that we talk about ad nauseum at the national level, but know how to like fix streets. They know how to go in and make neighborhoods, like fix neighborhoods, address a small level crime problem. These kinds of things are there's a competence that pe- people uh, flock to competence. You know, if you're somebody who has the 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 vision of changing something substantially in an abstract sense you if you can't deliver on those competent lower level things you just you're dead in the water and the thing is is i think people on the right have that level of competence people on the right tend to be folks that know how to do things with their hands compared to their you know their their the correlation on the left right these are people that know how to get shit done right they're doers they're, they're, the reason why they always seem like they're politically asleep is because they're actually productive and then this is the thing is like even if you can't sell those abstract notions to your constituents, you keep those things in your pocket and you show yourself to be a competent leader on the, on the local level. And then you get things done that you care about in those, in those ways. And you buy in, you get the buy-in from constituents by delivering on shit that they really want. And you sometimes don't even have to address these things all out and telegraph what your intentions are to your adversaries, but it's, it's winning those, those layups 
that, and I just, and I'll just say this, I'm, I'm sorry to hammer this so much, but I've been working with people for the last two years on getting them involved locally. And this is like, it's boring. This is like the kind of boomer talk, right? There's a lot of people that roll their eyes when you talk like this, but I've seen people that understand the issues we're talking about here and that are addressing them, but they're also like getting shit done in their tiny communities that they live in. They're also getting the, the you know, they're able to address perennial problems that a derelict, maybe lefty type town council has been neglecting for years. There are pragmatic concerns, but then in the same token that they're getting the buy-in, they're addressing the issue of like having illegal immigrants in their community and having day laborers and penalizing the day laborers, penalizing businesses that are facilitating this, enhancing municipal codes and laws that affect people that are breaking these laws when it comes to immigration. So like, I think that it, the right would we'd be so much better off if we would kind of balance out some of our theoretical discussions with like pragmatic, these pragmatic talks about like, what is it like to, to actually like exhibit power at a local level? What is it like to show a level of competence and to tackle issues that are not sexy when they come onto a national level, but will build you a coalition of support. The curious Joel, uh, Orthodox Jewish enclave is a really interesting example, but I think it goes to my point that, uh, that those Jews there would be wasting their time and probably more than wasting their time. They would probably undercut the efforts that they are making in their local community if they were spending an inordinate amount of their political energy trying to take over the state government or the federal government. Uh, and then- take, take over the state government is one thing, but, you know, affect their policies at a national level. They actually do that. They, they they do do that. I, I think that, you know, one of the, the things that I think you have to admire about uh, about American Jewry is that it is incredibly it has incredibly solid politically. They know what they want and they go after it and they get it. Um, yeah. You know, if, if all of the I think it's like what a population of 80,000, if the population of 80,000 of them said, OK, now we're going to take over upstate New York. Yeah, sure. That would be stupid. Right. Um but if they were to say, hey, we're going to lobby our politicians on, uh, you know, anti-BDS um, or maybe it's pro-BDS, I forget, you know, this, this uh, you know, Palestine-Israel boycott law, we're going to make sure that our voices are heard. We're going to make sure that they know they can't fuck with us. They totally do that. Um, how would they do it on know, an issue that is absolutely central and fundamental to the state regime? that they want to influence uh well i mean what would you do you think that do you think that uh the, the the federal government is going to go into curious joel and ask why uh you know hey looks like uh looks like your mitzvah looks like your mitzvah tanks aren't uh you know all gendered looks like your um you know looks like your uh your your, your religious schools uh, they're not teaching about uh, transgenderism they're not teaching about uh, how hateful it is that you're homogenous they don't, they, there's no interface with that because of their solidarity. It's also that, that's what it, I mean by a level of solidarity where you can't be uh, run roughshod over. That level has to be, maybe that level is only 70,000 people in a town uh, in upstate New York. Maybe that's what, uh, you know, Heritage America has been reduced to. I think there are actually quite a lot more ordinary Americans uh, who don't appreciate these things, who could have a level of solidarity if they were organized around it. And and I think actually that was seen in the 2016 election. It's why they voted for Trump. Um, and when Trump strayed from those issues, he was handily defeated. Uh, those voters didn't come out again. Well, I mean, he got 10 million or 12 million more votes than he got the first time around. So I don't sure, know. Sure, but not in the places it. where it matters. He, he, he didn't win the states that matter, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. He actually lost more white male voters 
Um, sure, he, he did better than ever with uh, with African-American voters, Latino voters, but he, he lost the, the core that, that elected him. And he lost that's the percentage straight from the immigration lost, issue. He lost uh, he a percentage actually, to those people, but he didn't lose an ab- those people in absolute numbers. He gained white voters. He gained white males. He just lost. It a did, did he gain white voters in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania? And, I don't think he did. In Ohio, and some uh, key battles. Uh, not Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, yeah. Pennsylvania, and the in the electoral states that actually like, matter. I did. He lost county analysis. He lost voters that he had won previously. I did the county by county analysis, and he improved his margin in a lot of the whitest parts of the country. And that that's not the same as the states that matter. And, and it's key, that the big key was that a lot there were a lot more people who stayed home and didn't come out and vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016. That that was the big thing. Is Biden was able to bring a lot more of the Democratic base out compared to Hillary versus Trump. Uh, sliding there, there wasn't that you know it was a relatively low low turnout election in 2016. It was a higher turnout election in 2020, and the Democrats because they had the uh, the vote by mail system, all of that set up, they were able to hit it logistically and just outwork the Republicans on the ground. And we didn't have well. A- we're, 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 we're now we're talking about two sort of different things, which is how do you win national elections. And is immigration the most issue, important issue to focus on? And you know, I, I've made you know, I've, I've talked about this before on Twitter. Like, I, I don't think it, it, lo- it matters any longer uh, who the U.S. president is, unless you have control of basically the presidency, the, the Senate, and the, you know, the Congress as a whole. Uh, you know, favorable stacked Supreme Court. Um, for, formal politics, I think. You know, national politics. Uh, I, I, I'm just not confident there are going to be a lot of victories there. But the issue of immigration itself, I do think that is the one to be com- completely obstreperous on at all levels of politics. It is the issue of sovereignty, who's allowed to be in the country or not. If the if the locus of organization happens to be purely local at the municipal level, then let it be. But okay, I, I okay. think it is that, actually you know, that, the that core clarifies issue. your position a bit for me. That actually helps because I, I don't think maybe we disagree as much as uh maybe both of us thought we did like i um i agree that immigration is a great issue for uh to to rally around for sorting out uh kind of us versus them and developing political coalitions um i just don't think that people should expect to accomplish much at the federal level uh, and I, spend their time yeah I, I don't i don't think it's an instrumental issue that's useful for rallying and uh bifurcating people i don't think it's a scissor issue in that way i think uh, it, it is a scissor, scissor issue, but I don't think that's its primary relevance. I think the, the actual import of immigration as a focus at any level is a question of who is an American, who do Americans allow into this country, and at, at whatever level they can, uh, who has a right to be here, who gets to be here, who is in control of this territory. At every level of the territory, at every level of political and material organization, I think that is the most fundamental question. And to the degree that that question is unanswered or the answer is not Americans, I think that's a I think that's a huge loss. Well, I I agree with you about the importance and centrality of these issues and that if we don't if we can't control who comes into the country, then we don't have a country. I agree with you on that. I just think, you know, you're you're even telling us you'd have to have a stacked Supreme Court, both houses of uh, of Congress, the presidency, you'd have to probably replace whole layers of the federal bureaucracy and you would have mm-hmm. to sustain you know, that to, to, to achieve it decade. in kind of a formal way. Sure. But, uh, you know, look, DACA, you know, was effectively an extra legal thing. 
um, you know, uh, you know, Erica, you know, you know, just a but few it's, years it's after Erica in 1986, well, just that it's, you know, doc to, to look at DACA, it's much easier to not enforce a law than it is to completely do a 180 and start, you know, enforcing one. I mean, it's it's really not hard for Obama to say we're not going to uh, enforce. I, I think I think there are a lot of laws that, if left unenforced, uh, the natural affinities of Americans would would lead to some very interesting results. Okay, I, I think okay, I see where you're going. You know, discretion of the beat cop looking the other way at the federal level, I think, could produce many interesting things. That's that's a good point. Actually, that's a great point, Ben. Let's get you back in here. Um, what do you think about? I mean, you made actually some very interesting suggestions as far as federal policy uh with regard to you know central america and so forth um what do you what do you think about like just the federal versus state local issue and what can be accomplished yeah so i would take it even outside of that and uh and start considering like is there something that we could do uh even at a higher level uh within our own hemisphere right so across latin america there's a uh coalition of leftist movements uh, under various umbrella organizations. One is the Pueblo group out of Mexico. The other is the form of Sao Paulo out of Brazil. And it's like these uh, sort of congresses, old school Soviet congresses of left-wing parties across the entire region. And they coordinate uh, you know, various movements and they've successfully just in the past few years, turned almost the entirety of Latin America uh, from a, a place that was uh, full of center-right governments to full of leftist governments. And you're seeing countries like Colombia that were traditionally very right-wing now uh, very possibly becoming uh, miniature Venezuela situations, right? Uh, Nicaragua, all these other places. So you know, when you have something like uh, like what happened in Brazil, where there was a lot of U.S. pressure on how that election was conducted, essentially to keep the military from fulfilling its constitutional duty to protect the integrity of that election. Uh, we sent the CIA director down there. We sent an NSA advisor down there. The Senate passed a unanimous resolution uh, telling Brazil that if telling Bolsonaro's government and the military there that if they you know did anything to uh, secure their election, that they would come under U.S. sanction. There were no Republicans that stood up and said this is a bad idea when that happened in the Senate. Like Republicans are so checked out on what's going on in our own backyard, and I don't just mean Republican rank and file voters. I mean Republican politicians. There's a few guys like Marco Rubio that they are keyed in on Latin issues because, uh, you know, they, they have large constituencies. But for the most part, it's just this total obliviousness. And there's been this allowance of allowing uh, the Republicans have just stood by and let the State Department go into places like Honduras and push out right wing presidents and, you know, bring in uh, left wing globalist presidents. So I think one one area is just if we had a a means by which to start pressuring our guys or you know letting them know uh, you know our friendly representatives in Congress uh, 
to stand up when the U.S. national security apparatus tries to carry, uh, you know, really, really destructive uh, foreign policy actions in Latin America. So as an example, you know, with what's happened in El Salvador, it's really been a, a miraculous trend. Uh, change in the past two years, uh, going from the most violent place in, in America's to now one of the safest. Uh, if the U.S. Department of State ever attempted to carry out a color revolution against Bukele, that would be one of those cases where I think the American right should really throw down the gauntlet and, you know, get get loud and get uh blow it up into a scandal in a way that, you know, people on the right just didn't do when the same thing was happening in Libya and Ukraine in 2014 and other countries. I think we need to be better about picking up on what our own government is doing uh, and is up to and, you know, acting forcefully to, uh, to, to try to stop it. Right. So that, that brings us to the other part of this, which is a lot of our immigration is tied into our foreign policy. You know, it's the invade the world, invite the world kind of situation that we find ourselves in. And I don't think we're ever going to to make real headway on immigration until we uh, we stop this, uh, you know, endless wars, endless refugees kind of paradigm. Like we we really have to uh, tamp down on our own foreign policy. And I think that'll do, you know, a lot of good as far as. as far as, you know, getting to the root causes of illegal immigration uh, and also, our, you know, our monetary system, a lot of uh, the development problems in Latin America are directly tied to their use of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency and the way that we, you know, print <laughs> fake money on demand, right? Uh, you've seen a, a pretty drastic uh problem of economic stagnation ever since the U.S. changed from a, a gold-backed currency to a fully fiat currency. And I think that's been a big factor that's held Latin America back since the 70s. So, you know, in that in that respect, too, like you don't even have, you can just end run around our own government, right? When there was uh, an American down in El Salvador that pitched uh, the government there on using Bitcoin, right? Adding that as a legal tender and, and starting to, you know, experiment with various alternative monetary regimes that that's something that you know you didn't have they didn't have to go through the u.s government to do uh the u.s government would have been opposed to that that was just a private citizen uh you know introducing an idea to the government there for being a government there who was you know interested and willing to act on it so i think there's a there's room to be really creative and it's going to take a lot of creativity because the way the situation is now, it's just kind of ossified into a kind of trench warfare on the immigration debate. So I think, uh, you know, that's that's an area where both in tactics and policies uh, and strategies, uh, it's an area where I think there's a lot of, you know, it looks pretty blackpilling just you know, as we've discussed the ins and outs of it, but I think there are, there are things we could come up with that could improve the situation. Yeah. Lee uh, brought up the point that we're probably heading into a world where 
globalization at the very least takes several steps backward and that the the you know the, the the unipolar moment of US hegemony is is probably coming to an end and and the globalization regime with it at least for a good period of time and i think though that you know that that sort of carries the implication that we are probably it's probably desirable but also that it's probably uh, inevitable that as globalization takes steps back, uh, the Western Hemisphere itself becomes more integrated, just diplomatically. You know that that, that I think over time, and I know that the the Greek statue uh, crew um, very much thinks of the United States as an outpost of European civilization in the New World. Um, I think that you know it, it's it's probably been that, uh, but that going forward, I mean, if you look on a long, long term basis, you know, if you look a uh, hundred years, five hundred years from now, um, that the United States is probably a civilization in formation in and of itself. Uh, not that we'll ever completely lose our connection with Europe, but that uh, the Western Hemisphere is probably likely to become. I mean, we're more or less autarkic in this in this hemisphere. Uh, and that we're destined to sort of become something that is different from uh, the European route that we that we grew out of. Thing about El Salvador that shocks me the most is just how uh, how integrated, like how aligned the president and the people who work in the government are. It would be like if the DMV lady was like, "You make America great again. I'm going to give great customer service in line with President Trump's vision. Like that's how the functionaries at even lower levels talk. But I was, I went to the Ministry of uh, Foreign Relations for an event and it's talking about everyone's on the same page and government there, like their attitude is we're here to serve the people. So in this visa program, they ha- they were giving these uh departure briefings to people who were going to be working seasonally in places like Bar Harbor, Maine and you know, American resorts and all of this sort of thing of saying, look, this is, you know, this is at the airport because a lot of them hadn't flown before. You know, these are your rates. Uh, we'll add you a group. So if anything is going on uh, with your employer we can be in contact with the uh, with U.S. Department of Labor, et cetera, et cetera. Like just the uh, the customer, it was like being in a country where Chick Fil A employees were running the show, which is a is a totally different experience from being in the United States. So it's it's a place where you know I would encourage people uh, who are investors to consider going down there and, and considering uh, investment opportunities and development opportunities and that sort of thing. Cause there's a lot of real possibility. And if, so th- that's something else that, you know, you don't need the U S government for uh, it, it would be better if, I, I guess, if, you know, we were all on the same page uh, as Americans, but I think Americans can still play a role even when the state department is just focused on, you know, uh, passing out money to various NGOs.
Rush in, put some needle in her skin. 